0: This past week, we had the joy of celebrating the wedding of Pastor Tim and Naomi's daughter, Lily, to her new husband, Alex. Uh, It was a unique wedding. It was a drive-in wedding over on the east side of the building over here. And they came riding up in a brand new Camaro, a fancy Camaro convertible. But, you know, to me, every wedding has become a reminder of the unity that exists between Christ and his church. Marriage is one of the great pictures that God has given to the world to demonstrate His love for us and what the union of Christ and the church is to look like. So, marriage is one of those great pictures, but the other one is the church itself. We are a picture that God has given to the world to show what His love is like. So, turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 17. And as you're turning there, I just want to set the scene for you. Jesus is still in the upper room with his disciples. They've just finished a meal together, what would be Jesus' last before going to the cross. He knows that he is moments away from being arrested, tortured, put on trial, and executed. He knows this because one of his dinner guests that night has already left the room to betray him to the authorities. But in this crucial hour for our Lord, his concern is not for himself, but his concern is for his disciples. And so he spent much of the conversation at dinner that night telling them, Let not your hearts be troubled. He even gave them the assurance that in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, he says, I have overcome the world. Not only this, but he's about to send them out on their mission. He's going to send them on a mission to make disciples of all nations. After he's raised from the dead, he himself is not going to go about as he had preaching and teaching. He's going to send them out. Now he's going to give them power of the Holy Spirit to do the work that he's called them to do but he knows that he also needs to continue praying for them and so he prays for his disciples but he goes even beyond those in the room there with himself and he prays for those of us who would believe in him through their word so pick it up with me in verse 20 of John chapter 17 he says I do not ask for these only that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So I want us to see in these verses a movement. There's a movement from Jesus through the church to the world. So again, we're going to see Jesus giving gifts to the church that are then to be a message to the world uh, about who he is. And what is clear in all of this is that unity is essential to the church's mission. Unity is essential to the church's mission. But in this passage, there are two things that are needed. And the first is prayer. Jesus prays for us. First, he prays for his disciples who were there with him. And you know the feeling that you get when somebody who is with you prays for you while you're there with them. And here, Jesus invites us in to hear his prayer on our behalf. And that's truly remarkable when you think about it. Because none of us existed 2,000 years ago. Peter, James, John, the rest of them, they didn't know us. They didn't know South Church. And yet here in their midst, Jesus prays for us. So confident is he of the success of their mission. And if you've ever wondered what the inner life of God is all about, or what it looks like for the Father to communicate with the Son and vice versa, here we get just a small glimpse. And in their intimate communication, the Father and the Son who have existed from eternity past, here they're speaking about us, and Jesus is praying for us. As Pastor Don reminded us a few weeks ago from James chapter 5, certainly the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working, and none has ever been righteous except Jesus alone. So certainly if this prayer is to be effective, if any prayer is to be effective, it's going to be Jesus He knows that if we're going to succeed in our mission, he needs to intercede for us. Because the mission that he has called us to is not within our power to accomplish. God must accomplish the mission through us. And thankfully, through prayer and many other ways, God is committed to doing exactly that. And what's most encouraging is to know that Jesus, unlike us, he doesn't pray once and then forget about it. But he, in fact, as Hebrews 7 tells us, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, that is for us. And I have to imagine that part of Jesus' ongoing intercession sounds a lot like this. Not saying that's all that it is, but it definitely includes this, because he interceded so long ago. Again, in Romans, it tells us who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, even now, at 10.06 on Sunday morning, who is interceding for us. So what is he praying for? Well, it has to be including unity. He's praying for our unity as a church. So that's the first thing we see is that Jesus prays for us and he continues to pray for us. The second thing is perhaps even more remarkable, which is that he has given us his glory. Now if you're familiar with the Old Testament, this is a staggering thing that Jesus says here. In Isaiah chapter 48, the Lord says, "'My glory I will not give to another.'" As we heard from Pastor Tim last week, the uniqueness of God, of the one true God, the Lord who is sovereign over all. And yet here Jesus says, the glory that you, Father, have given to me, the Son, I have given to them. And that is all those who would believe in him. He has given us his glory. But what is he talking about? Does that mean that somehow south church is made equal with him and deserving of worship the way that jesus is of course not so what does he mean when he says he has given us his glory new testament scholar richard Bauckham says the glory here is the radiance of god's character when people become christians and even perhaps more so when we're assembled as a local church we begin to radiate his character we begin to think like him and act like him. We can love the way that he loves. We can be people of grace and truth. And that and that can't happen merely in isolation as individuals. It happens in the context of Christian community. And for all the church's shortcomings, and they are many and they are well documented, but for all of the church's shortcomings, we are the ones that God has chosen To radiate his character in the world. This is by design. Jesus has seen to that. He has given us his glory. And this happens. We're able to radiate his character and display his glory because he identifies with us as his people. See, the good news of the gospel is not that we commit to God, the good news of the gospel is he has committed to us in Christ. He is our God. Just as in the Old Testament it says that he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so he is not ashamed to be called our God either. So closely does he identify himself. We call him Father, the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. And because he has so identified himself with us, we begin to radiate his character. It's similar to the way they say married couples begin to look like one another after a period of time. Uh, Mercifully, my wife has been spared that. But as God's people, the longer we're with him, the more we begin to look like him. The more we begin to radiate his character. So those are the things that God has given us, that Christ has given us. He's given us, uh, he prays for us, and he's given us his glory But he's done these things so that we might be united. But then we have to ask the question, well, what is the nature of our unity? See, unity among people always exists around something. People aren't just united just for the sake of being united. There's something in the middle that unites people. So for sports fans, uh, sports fans are united around their common love for their sports team. Or a common hatred for the rival team, whatever it may be. Uh, Political parties, in the same way, unite around a platform or a candidate. Or, likewise, against another party and their platform and candidate. But as Christians, we are first and foremost united around Christ himself. Now, for those who first believed in him, who were there that night in the upper room... They were literally united around him. And you can picture it. Uh, This is kind of a faint rendering of uh, Leonardo's upper room. But you can see how they're literally united around Jesus. The thing they all had in common was him. And that was a physical reality for them as they're sitting there around the table. But how is it that we can be united around Christ? He's not physically present here. We long for his return, but he's not right here in our midst. So how is it that we then become united around Christ? Where well, we're united around him as we believe in his word. We believe the word about him. This is the word of the apostles, the New Testament. We as Christians are united around Christ as we believe the word about Christ written down in the scriptures. And so we believe what people like John and Matthew, and Mark, and Luke, and Paul, what they all wrote about him. But believe here isn't just a matter of thinking that it's true, or agreeing with it. Believe here has the deeper meaning, as Pastor Doug shared last Sunday evening, that we act as if it were true. In other words, the people that Jesus is praying for here, they're the ones who live As though he is actually the one sent from God. As though he is himself God in the flesh. That he's the only way of salvation. That only his death can pay the penalty for sins. That he really did rise from the dead. And that all those who are not following him are presently under the wrath of God. While all who do follow him will one day rise from the dead and inherit the blessing of eternal life. And that one day he's coming back to judge all mankind. When we act as though that were true, we have believed the word and we find ourselves not in isolation, just me and God, but we find ourselves in a throng of people who have likewise believed. The key to our unity in the church is that it is centered on Christ alone. And so that means here that what Jesus is praying for, the unity he's praying for, is not based on secondary preferences or demographics. We're not united around our age or stage of life. We're not united around race or politics or socioeconomics or even music style or recreational interests. These are categories that any group in the world can unite around. They're they're natural points of unity. Even in a fallen world, people still come together around those things. But our unity is based solely on a shared belief in and commitment to Jesus as the Lord who saves. And there's no substitute for this. There's no substitute in the church to find some other affinity to be united with one another around. It must be Christ. But thankfully... Once we realize that our unity can only be centered on Christ, all these other factors fall by the wayside. Only Christ can unite people across ages, race, socioeconomics, all of those other things. And he doesn't do it by eliminating our differences. He unites us despite our differences. And that is a supernatural unity. That is a glorious unity. There is no secular institution or organization that has the resources to keep people together across all of these lines of hostility like Jesus. Only Christ has the resources to achieve that. As it says in Ephesians 2, He himself is our peace who has broken down in his own flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And that Christ is the only one who can unite humanity like this is actually by design. Thus our unity only can be centered around Christ. Everything else will fail. And one of the glorious things is that as we're united around Christ amidst our differences, we actually begin to reflect the character of God. We begin to participate in the life of God. That sounds like kind of an abstract concept. Well, God is triune. That is, he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all distinct from one another and yet united. So the Father is not the Son. They are distinct. And the Gospel of John makes this quite clear in verse uh, 1 of chapter 1. It says, in the beginning, the Word was with God. There's a distinction there. The Father sends Jesus to do his works. Jesus here prays to God. And yet, the Father and the Son are completely united in love and in purpose. Also in the first verse of the Gospel, it says the Word was God. Jesus himself would later say that I and the Father are one. And earlier that night at dinner, Jesus told one of his disciples Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Though they are distinct, and though they serve in distinct roles in the process of salvation, they are totally united in power and in glory, in love and in purpose. And that is, in effect, how God has established his church. We are distinct, are we not? We even have distinct rooms that we're meeting in right now. We have distinct giftings. God has created us with unique personalities and perspectives and talents. And supernaturally, he's given us spiritual gifts, as Pastor Doug read a moment ago, so that each of us has something unique to contribute to the building up of the body in unity. Our diversity serves to build us up together in one. And that is a radical, otherworldly unity. This is not some sort of polite coexistence. This is a divinely orchestrated unity. Again, as I said, we get very few glimpses into the inner life of God. But the scene that follows Jesus' prayer here in the upper room is one of the most intimate it says, after Jesus prayed this prayer in the upper room, he and his disciples went out across the Kidron Valley and stopped in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there in the garden, Jesus prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So here's Jesus, equal in power and in glory with the Father. And yet he shows His deference and submission to the will of the Father. I mentioned a moment ago that marriage is one of those great pictures that God has given to the world to show His love. This whole idea of submission is not just a male female thing. We see Jesus Himself demonstrate submission and deference to the Father. The Son of God humbly submits to the will of the Father to go to the cross, even at great cost to himself because he loves the father and he knows the father loves him and he is committed to doing the father's will even if it's going to cost him his very life and that's the life that we get to participate in as christians in the church we get to live out the kind of humble deference and submission to one another that exists even in the inner life of our triune god But of course, we don't do this perfectly. Our unity is not perfect, but it could be described as perfecting. That is a continuous, more perfect union, as it were. A more perfect unity. And so Jesus prays in verse 23 that we may become perfectly one. And again, from the passage Pastor Doug read a moment ago, the goal is to become perfectly one to accurately embody the lord jesus christ here in this world but of course we're not yet there our experience of unity is imperfect but hopefully our experience is an ever deepening one we deepen in our sense of oneness with our fellow believers in christ and the beauty is that jesus is committed to our growth in unity as we said he prays for us He's given us his glory to radiate his character more and more, to abound more and more in the radiance of his glory, not only as individuals, but as a church. The church is the focus here, not just us as individual Christians. And of course, we won't reach perfect unity until Jesus returns and we're glorified together with all the saints. But in the meantime, we press on toward greater individual spiritual maturity. Yes, but even greater unity in the church, which is a sign of our collective maturity in Christ. But as we talked about unity, it's important to note that unity is not an end in and of itself. Unity is a means by which God is accomplishing his mission in the world. This brings us again to the main point that unity is essential to the mission, It's essential to make known to the world Jesus' identity. This gets repeated. Look again at verse 21 and 23. For all the apparent repetition in this passage, the only phrase that gets repeated exactly is this one, that you sent me. The unity of believers reveals to the world that Jesus is sent from God, that he is the only son From the Father, full of grace and truth. So then we have to ask the question how is it that our unity reveals Jesus' identity? Well, again, sin has not only alienated us from God, sin has alienated us from one another. This is the progression you see in Scripture from the very beginning where Adam and Eve sinned against God, high handed sin in the garden, and immediately they turn on one another. And in the next chapter, they're murdering one another. And by the end of that chapter, they're murdering an abundance of one another. Lamech. That's the pattern of humanity. Sin has alienated us not only from God, but from one another. And there are a thousand things out there to divide us. Constantly dividing us. Dividing the divisions between us. And Jesus redeems us, not only by reconciling me to God, but by reconciling us to God. And this is the key, because for all the things out there that people look for for redemption, one of the key things they're looking for is, what's going to bring people together? What's really going to unite humanity? What's going to establish peace between human beings? That's what people are looking for in salvation. And what this means, the fact that our unity demonstrates this to the world, reiterates and reinforces the point That no secular organization or institution has the resources to do this. Only in Jesus can people be united across all points of hostility and division. And so Jesus is glorified when people realize that it's only him that can, can accomplish this. And once we recognize this, that Jesus is the only one, then we think about the bigger picture of God's mission in the world. God's mission in the world is summed up not in the Great Commission, but in Ephesians chapter 1. It says, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, that is Christ. Unite all things in him or under him as the head. Things in heaven and things on earth. So the present unity of believers in Christ, which can only truly be seen tangibly in the local church, because every other Christian organization has some other barrier to entry. The barrier to entry to the church is faith in Jesus. Every other organization has some other factor. So in the local church, we see the present unity of believers, and that unity is a foretaste of the final purpose of God for all of creation, You remember how the Bible starts out? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What was the point? What was the point of creating the heavens and the earth? Ephesians gives us the answer. The point of creating the heavens and the earth is that one day, God could unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And so if that's God's mission in the world, to unite all things in Christ, then to pursue unity with those who are also in Christ is a taste of that mission being accomplished. It's no coincidence that the number one reason missionaries leave the field is because of division amongst their co-workers, fellow missionaries. And you know what? One of the biggest reasons for mission drift or failure among the American church is exactly the same we are plagued by individualism in our churches we are plagued with it it's not just out there in the culture where everybody's wrapped up with me it's right here in the church we are so wrapped up in our own stories our own preferences our own desires our own dreams our own schedules that we resist the unity that God has accomplished for us through the blood of his only son, Jesus. We resist that blood-bought unity for the sake of what? Our own personal identity? Making sure the world knows who I am? We live in a world where every attachment, every relationship is negotiable. I don't like something, I'm out of here. We wonder where the divorce rates come from. It comes from people holding all their attachments as negotiable. We can't just point to the individual sins of those getting divorced. We have to look at what are we doing as a church that would communicate to people that yes, your relationships are negotiable. If you don't like something, just find a new relationship. Just move on to the next thing. That's how we operate and it's not just in the culture. It's right here in the church. Unity is not a secondary issue in the Bible. Not only does Jesus pray for it here in this crucial hour, but Paul addresses it in almost every one of his letters. Almost every one has, at least as a minor focus, if not a major one, this theme of unity in the church. And again, many non-Christians resist religion in general and Christianity in particular because they see not only individual hypocrisy in the church, they see division and infighting and devouring one another. They say, how is it better in there than out here? Brothers and sisters, that ought not be so. We are united with a blood-bought, supernatural, glorious unity, And we prove that Jesus is the only one who's come from God when we live out that unity together. But there's more to the mission, and that is to show God's love for his people. And we'll close with this. Whereas verse 23 repeats the aim of the world knowing or believing in Jesus' identity, that you sent me is in both verses. Verse 23 adds that by our unity the world will know That God loves us the same as he loves Jesus. Wow. God's love for us is the same as his love for the sinless son of God. For all of your imperfections, for all of our imperfections as a church, and they are many, God's love for us is the same as his love for the one seated at the right hand right now. Think about that. In John 3.16, as Paul Borthwick preached a couple weeks ago, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's what God did out of his love for the world. But how is the world going to know this love of God? The world is going to know the love of God through our unity in Jesus This kind of covenantal, committed, self-sacrificing love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross ought to be the same kind of love that we demonstrate towards one another in the church. And when non-Christians see that love demonstrated among the people of God, they can't help but wonder, why do you love each other? Why do you treat each other like this? And of course, the logical answer is, we love because he first loved us. You want to be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have? Here's a pretty succinct one, a pretty good one. In the college ministry every year, they take a trip to Florida uh, for spring break. And every year, Pastor Neil would say, we bring our mission field with us. So every year, we'd have a few non-Christians that would come on the trip. And just about every year, we would hear a story of someone either on the trip or after the trip professing faith in Christ And I don't know how many times we heard this, but we heard it a lot. That what drew them to Christ was not just the message about Christ, but it was the love that people showed towards one another. Unity is essential to the mission of the church. And so I hope as we see Jesus' own priority in his prayer, and as you have opportunity to read Paul's letters, to see this emphasis over and over again, that we'll take our commitment to one another as Christians all the more seriously. May God give us grace to do it. Let's pray. Our Father, as we consider these divided times in which we live, we're reminded that the light shines brightest in the darkest places. God, I pray for South Church, that we would be a people united and not divided. And Lord, help our unity to be a true reflection, a radiance of your glory, and not just a mere polite coexistence that we so often settle for. But Lord, we know if we're to accomplish this, it must be through your power and your grace. So be with us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.